welcome to the fourth podcast in our 2021 Advent Sermon Series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley is continuing our series with a sermon called A Bigger Jesus. Welcome everyone, we're glad that you're here. Uh, it may be a little windy outside, but it's not a tornado. So we are thankful for that this morning. Uh, glad that you're here, that awesome time of worship already. Love those songs, a selection of songs, that third one in particular really covers such a wide gamut of the things that we sang about. There is so much to praise God for this morning, right? Are we in agreement on that? Yes, we are. Uh, what he has, what, what's that? Hallelujah. That's right. Praise the Lord. Yep. So much to be thankful for. Uh, our text takes us back into that realm and that place uh, of thankfulness this morning. We have been working in this um, Advent series through the first few verses of the book of John, and I want to bring to mind another book, uh, a series of books that I've enjoyed. Uh, you know when you're a kid, maybe this isn't you, but when I was a kid, uh, and I went through classes in school, we were forced to read books that we didn't want to read. Anybody ever go through that? Okay, right? Like, I hate this. Why are you making me do this? Oh, this is school. I'm supposed to hate reading, right? So that was, that was my thing for at least a while in elementary school, and not until I discovered the Chronicles of Narnia did I really enjoy reading. I loved those stories, and I don't think anyone uh, whether it's for a child reader or an adult reader. I don't think anyone captured the wonder of being in the presence of God quite like C.S. Lewis did in the Chronicles of Narnia. See the picture on the screen? Uh, that's from uh, uh, one of the movies that were out kind of a while ago now, I guess. Uh, but listen to this, just a snippet of the conversation that little Lucy, she's pictured on the screen there, has with Aslan, the lion. Obviously, he's the the, the God character in this series, as she approaches Aslan, not having seen him for a while in this point in the story. This, is from, uh, this quote is from Prince Caspian. She hasn't seen him for a while, and he looks different. And here's what happens. She rushes to him. She felt her heart would burst if she'd lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last, the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all round her. She gazed up. Into the, into the large, wise face. Welcome. I wish I could do the voice. Welcome, child. Right? He said, Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, 
you will find me bigger. I want to land on that thought as we begin this morning. If you've been a follower of Christ for a while, if you call yourself a Christian, maybe you can relate to what it is that just happened there in that interaction. Maybe there was a time when you came to Christ that you pictured or understood Jesus in a certain way. And as you went through the challenges of life, then there's turning points, right? Uh, Is Jesus enough? in this situation? Will he be there for me? Is he doing something yet in my life, and my heart, so that I respond to him in a way that makes him, makes Jesus seem bigger than what he was before? More powerful, more capable, more active in my life. Can I trust him even with yet this other new thing? And then you find out, you discover, I hope you've discovered in your life that yes, You can trust him. You can discover that he is always faithful and true, no matter what the challenges are. So uh, think about this for a moment. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's who Jesus is. Now sometimes we picture, we've already talked about this a little bit, we picture Jesus as a baby, this time of year, we picture Jesus as the infant in the manger, and he's a certain something to us. And then possibly in other times in the, in the church calendar, as we, as we go through the, you know, may, maybe some of the regular traditional motions of church, Jesus seems bigger. So the challenge for us is, this morning is to catch a glimpse from what John tells us about Jesus that is bigger that is more possibly of a challenge than where you've been before in your life as a believer, as a follower, and to go there with what John tells us. Now, you remember, we already looked at this too, that John wrote his gospel so that all could believe, right? He's not trying to throw hurdles in front of us to try to frustrate our belief. He's right. He wrote to us this morning so that we could believe in Jesus and have life in his name. So what he does is direct us towards Jesus, but not a little Jesus, okay? Not not something that's overly simplistic, and certainly not an image or an idea of Jesus that is formed by popular culture, whether of today or of ancient culture. He wants to introduce to us, and in as few words as possible, a big Jesus, a Jesus that challenges us, a Jesus that is at times hard to comprehend. Imagine just for a moment, we know John is inspired by the the Holy Spirit. Uh, We know that that's what Scripture informs us on. But just imagine if you can, okay? I don't think this is too much of a stretch. To be in John's shoes and knowing what he knows at this point when he's writing his gospel, AD, 90, whatever it is, and he knows Jesus personally, how do you begin an account of the good news of Jesus to try to introduce people to him in just a few words with the enormity of who Jesus is and all of the implications of the good news, all of what he is as fully God, the word, we've already been introduced to him as that, and the light and life of men, all of these metaphors, these words that he used, how how do you do that? Well, we get this morning yet another installation here of how he continues the, the challenge, as it were, to look at Jesus and see God. 
Not see just a little infant, uh, but to see Jesus as fully God, and also, as we see and read this morning, fully man. How, here's a question I want to begin with, and we'll come back to it. How is Jesus challenging you today to come to him as Jesus, as King of kings and Lord of lords, as Savior of all, as the, the God-made man become man, as John describes him in our passage. Let's read that verse. It's just one verse. We already uh, heard it this morning. Let's read it again. John 1, 14. And the Word, now remember, he hasn't uh, identified the Word as Jesus yet specifically. We're getting there. He's building momentum to that. But we know from what John says that the Word, he's referring to Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does John tell us so that we can believe in a big Jesus, in a fully God Jesus? Well, he begins with this. Jesus became just like us. The Word became flesh. Now, John could have used all sorts of ancient Greek words to try to describe who Jesus is as Jesus becomes a man. Uh, most of those, all of those words are, are problematic because they, they lack the depth of meaning. Like I said earlier, how do you describe Jesus becoming a man in a few words, right? You try it, huh? I mean, volumes, a lot of ink has been spilled on this idea, right? And, and John does it in the word became flesh. Boom, mic drop, okay? That's where we begin. Jesus becomes like us, and he uses a word uh, that the word, the ancient Greek word is sarx, and it means flesh, and it is a very earthy word. Uh, it's almost a crude word. So it's not a word that can be translated, Jesus became a body, because that probably would have been confusing and misleading, not just to ancient people and to us today. John uses a word on purpose that draws us past some of those misleading, confusing things into the raw reality of who, of who Jesus is. It, and it is almost a crude thing. Skin and flesh and muscle and sinew and bone and blood, everything that goes along with being human, you and me today, is Jesus. So he, he used that Sark's word, uh, and establishes it early in the very beginning of the church. So all these other councils, as they wrestle with how in the world, no matter what their philosophical background is, how in the world, Jews and Greeks alike, how could God, God immortal, invisible, how could God become flesh and blood and skin and bone and hair and, and all the gross things that happen in humanity and our bodies. How could God do that? Nobody taught that God, that any God, little g, whatever, no one believed that God would even want to do that, much less be capable, the divine, be capable of coming into an existence where he's just like us. 
But John does that in four words. The word became flesh. All flesh, completely flesh, fully flesh. But as John teaches us in the context of this chapter, at the same time, all God, fully God, completely God, and not just John, but the rest of the New Testament then reinforces that teaching. The incarnation is what theologians use. Fully, completely God. He does not become less God when he becomes fully, completely man, altogether man. It's a mind-blowing thing, isn't it? Now, even if you've been in the church for a while, you've, you've, you've read this passage many times, don't lose track of how mind-blowing that is. It should be for us for the rest of our lives as we read it and as we treasure it. How can this be? I don't get it. Yet it is. God does that. There is no other illustration, I don't think, that adequately captures what it is with God becoming man. Everything else falls short, becomes too simplistic and too shallow compared with the unbelievableness of the incarnation. Fully God, fully man. Why is this so important? Why is it so central to the Father's plan? There are many reasons. We don't have time to go into all those. But here's one for, for us to contemplate this morning, okay? The incarnation, Jesus, God, and man. Only by becoming man, flesh, that is just like ours in this world that we live in, could Jesus, the eternally existing God, completely and adequately sympathize with our every weakness, which Scripture teaches us, and actually experience every temptation that we have ever experienced? And Scripture also teaches that. And theologians like to argue about that. Is, is temptation really tempting to God? Okay? Fully God, fully man. There are some things our brains can't, can't fully grasp. But we've got to believe what Scripture teaches, whether we can fully comprehend how those things go together or not. He was tempted, and those temptations are real at the same time as being fully God. And here's why that's so important. No one for all of history no matter what your experience or background, no matter what you've been through, can point their finger at God and say, but you don't know how hard I've got it. You don't know what I've experienced, the difficulty of overcoming this temptation or the struggles and the hardships that have come my way in life. God, you haven't been there. I've gone through something that you haven't. Now, some of us say that, and maybe for good reason, right? Because life hurts. And last week we talked about how wrecked this world is. And that's our common meeting point. No matter what background you have, I, I firmly believe we can all agree on one thing, that this world is broken. It's messed up, and we're in it. But Jesus becoming a man, fully human, says he goes through all of what we go through yet without sin and without compromise. He knows what it's like to be a kid playing in the dirt. 
He knows what it's like to be a teenager and all the frustrations and difficulties of that. He knows what it's like to have to obey your parents. Okay, everybody, you hear me? He knows what it's like to work long, hard, gritty days and at the end of the day not be rewarded or paid for what you think you deserve. He knows what it's like to be lied to. He knows what it's like to be abandoned, forgotten by your closest friends. He knows every level of suffering and heartache that we've been through. He knows what it's like to be hit in the face, to be mocked and ridiculed and scorned and tortured and even to die. Jesus went through all of that and so much more. That's just scratching the surface. Jesus went through all of that so that we can look at him, flesh and blood, and say, now I begin to realize who you are and your love for me. You've been there. You've gone through it. You know what it feels like to fill in the blank. Jesus has already been there. Isn't that a comfort I mean, when you remind yourself of that and when you go to prayer and even if you're struggling with wanting to pray, remind yourself of that. He's been through it. He knows. He sympathizes, Scripture says, with your weakness. Whatever it is, he's been there. He knows it. When you go to him, remind yourself he's already been there himself. So it becomes just like us, Number two, he moved in next to us. What in the world does that mean? The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Dwelt literally means pitched his tent with us. I know a number of native friends on the reservation who really like this verse when we get and we have a chance to talk about it. Ancient Israelites, many cultures still today, right? Live in a tent somewhere, okay? We, don't, we can't possibly connect with what that means out in a sandy whatever or next to a river somewhere. But Jesus did that. And God uses, again, this very earthy, this very real kind of language. Not only does he become flesh, he puts his tent next to us. He moves in next door. He is living in our neighborhood. Whatever the metaphor or the word picture that helps you understand, he comes in to your town to live right next to you. He is not some deity, mysterious, and and out there, esoteric, or whatever, uh, not tangible. He is not any of those things, even though we kind of slip into thinking every once in a while that he is. He is not. He has come to be with us. Now, another uh, very important thing to point out, that uh, God did live in a tent uh, during the ancient times, during the original testament. God came, and another way to translate is tabernacled. So when we went through the book of Exodus, long time ago now, we got into that a little more deeply, that God had a plan for the Israelites to build a tabernacle where his presence could be with his people in the holiest of holies. But there was always a distance between God and his people. Why? Because he, he's, you know, prideful or egotistical or whatever or likes to control or have power no it's because he just he is who he is 
the mighty power of Almighty God in His pure holiness would melt any of us. And even Moses, who had that special relationship with God, would come out, Scripture tells us, from away from God's presence on the mountain or in the tabernacle with his face glowing. And he had to, he had to put a veil over his face because people freaked out. Just because he was in the presence of a holy God. So God's not trying to show off. It's just who he is. We need to remind ourselves of that every once in a while. That God is holy, perfect, powerful, almighty in every way. So we do not come to him and, and reduce him or his power in our mind and think we can get away with it. We come to a holy God. That was the tabernacle experience. And even when Israel sinned, uh, he, he, uh, God moved his presence away from them so that his holiness in his wrath would not wipe them out. Again, not because he gets some kind of weird satisfaction of killing people. It's just who he is. He can't just shut that off. It's part of his, the nature of God. So the people had to be wary and be concerned with their own uh, lives and coming anywhere near a holy God. That was the tabernacle. God came to be with his people in a particular way, but now that way has forever changed. How do we know that? Verse 14, he came, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And what else does he say? Now, now we have seen his glory. Now, original testament, nobody can see God and live. Nobody. Uh, that, that's clear in Scripture. You can't just look at God and expect to walk away fine. Again, because of his holiness and his power and who he is, his nature, his deity, you can't just look at him and walk away. So what is John talking about? How, or what does he mean when he says, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. What is going on there? It, does he have in mind original testament? Well, maybe, but back then they couldn't look at God, but now they can look at God in Jesus and live, not just die melting to the ground Indiana Jones style, okay? But you can look at Jesus and have a whole new life. That's what he's drawing our attention to. That's his experience. That's everybody who, come, who has come to know Jesus when John writes that has been their experience. So what does his glory look like? When John tells us about his glory, he, he says also later on in his gospel, chapter 13, he says this, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You know what this, the context is? In John 13, almost half of the book of John is, excuse me, is the Passion Week, so we're picking up here in John 13, right after Jesus leaves the upper room with the disciples, the Lord's Supper that has been established, this brand new way of thinking about uh, the bread and the cup, okay? And they have left that upper room and they're going on now to the last steps that Jesus will ever take through 
the, the vineyard, through the valley, on to the garden where he prays, and then from there his arrest back into Jerusalem and all the crazy uh, uh, farcical uh, uh, false uh, uh, trial that goes on with the high priest and then finally to the torture and to the cross. He says, what does he say? Now this is the glorification that he came for. He came to become flesh, to do all that he's done for three whatever years. So as he says, this moment, I mean, the disciples didn't have any idea what he's talking about. But now, in this moment, Jesus says, I am glorified in the Father with me, and he's glorified. We're together. We're one in this. And you are seeing a glory that no one has ever seen before because he is going to what? The cross for us. His greatest glory is in your salvation. That's what he's talking about. Do you see it? Catch a glimpse of his glory and his love and his grace for you right now. Of all the things God could, could have uh, in this universe for all of eternity, the greatest glory is Jesus dying for you. That's, brothers and sisters, that's why he came in the flesh to have this glory. And John says, even in the bloody cross, we have seen his glory. Only God. In this, in this crazy, how, how could we understand God dying on a cross, right? But that's it. And we've seen it. God died for me. Oh, don't get brothers, sisters, don't ever get tired of that truth that John brings our focus in on this morning. That's glory. Jesus came. He moved in next to us. What? To be everything I need. Stop right there. Everything I need? Now let that sink in. All the stuff, all the things, the things that you needed this past week, or at least you sure felt like you needed this past week, that maybe you felt like God didn't come through on with you or for you. Everything I need? Well, the text doesn't say that, so am I making that up? Well, everything I need isn't in the text, so yeah, I made that up. But I'm using that for a reason, and why? What does he say? Word became flesh, he pitched his tent with us, we are able to see his greatest glory, and we benefit from that of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's got to have, he's got to come with both of those things. Full, the absolute fullness of what it means to be gracious. He came so we might believe through him. John doesn't use the word grace a lot in his gospel. If he uses it anywhere, it's in the first chapter. He is, Jesus is grace, the fullness of grace, but also he, his grace addresses our deepest need because he tells the truth about us, and he knows the truth in us, what, it, what is the truth about us, that's what I mean, and he addresses the deepest part of us in a truthful, truth-filled way. John 14 says this about Jesus. 
In fact, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So it's important that we understand that Jesus is perfectly, completely, fully grace and truth to understand what John is going uh, on or what he's trying to say and also what it is that we need the most. John speaks again. So he's got his Gospel of John, and there are three different letters that John uh, wrote. First, second, and third John, way at the end of your Bible. They're pretty short, but first John is uh, five chapters anyway. So he speaks again of Jesus coming to be with us and how he addresses, in another way, how he addresses both grace and truth. And he says this, in this the love of God was made manifest. It's present in us, around us, among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love comes down to us. That is grace. We can never say in any respect, in any way, in any percentage that I'm responsible for a love for God. Zero. I'm dead in my sin, Scripture says. A dead man can't help himself. Can't save himself, surely, right? If you're dead, you're dead. God sees me in my deadness and says, I love you. I'm going to come to this place in the flesh to live and die and live again for you. So his grace doesn't ignore our situation. In fact, our situation is a life and death situation. So Jesus didn't come to earth as a baby so we could have holiday gatherings and trees and presents and pagan celebrations and more stress and eat too much and maybe give a little more than usual at the end of the year. That's not Jesus. Jesus came to give us life, period. All the other stuff is just trappings and extra stuff that we can need to you know, find our way through every once in a while. Jesus, who is life, comes to give us life that we could not find on our own. Truth is, we're dead without him. Uh, it's his life to remove our death. Jesus gives life through himself and his death on the cross to take our place, because the cross really was ours. It was mine. I earned it. And Jesus dies on that cross, so I don't have to. I go free. That's grace. Unmerited favor. But there is truth that's at work in us and on us. To be the, he came to be the propitiation for our sins. I didn't know how to pronounce that until I was in college. And I still have to slow down to make sure it comes out right. God doesn't ignore our sins, not one of them. It doesn't get past him at any point, past, present, or future. That's another mind-blowing thing. Because the cross takes care of all of it. That's the grace and the truth of God in Jesus at work on our sin. Because you see, judgment comes because of sin, and we want God to be holy and right in his judgment, even though sometimes we struggle with, could God be wrathful, and nobody likes to use the word wrath anymore, because that doesn't seem like a loving thing, right? But, but at the same time, 
if somebody goes out uh, during this service right now and steals your car and you go out to get in your car in the cold and it's not there, will you be just a little bit tweaked? A little angry? Yeah, I know I would. Why? Because what happened isn't right. Yeah? We agree with that. I mean, almost everybody agrees, yep, that's not right. And yeah, I'm going to be ticked off. And that's just us. So God uh, isn't messy in the way that, that his wrath works. It's specific because he's holy. He is angry at what is not right. And we want him to be that way. Even though sometimes we kind of recoil at that idea but think of all the terrible things that happen and that have happened in our world. Would God be God if after a while he said, nah, it was a long time ago, people were different then. It doesn't matter as much anymore. Would that be God? I mean, talk about whatever, massacres, wars, widespread death and plagues and killing. You don't, you don't want God to say, nah, it doesn't matter anymore. No, it does matter. God, what are you doing about it? He is doing something about it. He is at work making all things wrong right through the blood of Christ. He removes the wrath. That's what propitiation is. The anger, the righteous anger of what we've done wrong, Jesus takes it so I don't have to to worry about bearing that on myself anymore. Jesus covers me with his blood. That's truth. He doesn't ignore anything that we've done or anything that we will do. He deals with it and directly dies for it. So here's some more truth for this this morning. Our biggest problem right now is not overreaching government. It's not out of control despots wherever they are in this world today runaway inflation rates, injustices that happen in our cities everywhere. All of those are bad things, right? Our biggest problem in this world right now is ourselves. The biggest issue we need to directly deal with, that I need to deal with, is myself. Without the extension and the change that comes along with grace and truth in my life, I will continue, I will continue to make what is bad worse. Without Jesus, that's what I will do. I believe that without Christ, the biggest problem that we need to face is what in the world have I done in this world? There's plenty of other stuff we can always point fingers at, that's for another lifetime. Right now, we need to point the fingers at ourselves and take a long, hard look with what it is that we do, and now I'm speaking directly, specifically to believers, what is it that we do with a big Jesus? When he asks us to obey, to abide, to be found faithful to him, are we finding life and joy and meaning and purpose in that, or is it just an ob another obligation that gets in the way? Jesus has every reason to ask everything of us. In fact, he asked us to count the cost of following him, right? You're familiar with that? Uh, are you willing to take up your cross daily and follow him? That is the response that he has to us. 
but to enable not just to do that of obligation, but to do that joyfully. Yes, Lord, I get to live and even if necessary, lay down my life for you because you have given me life eternal. Yes, I'll do that. If you want me to move in that direction, I will do it because of the joy that you set before me in my life. Just think if Christians lived like that today, what would be the consequences, the implications of that kind of living? Jesus comes with grace, full grace, and full truth to change us, to give us life so that we would then, by extension of his purity and his holiness and his love and his grace, be the same in this world around us. So I'll uh, wrap up with one question. You know, it's that time of year you think about uh, resolutions or what has this year done for me or what have I done with my life in this past year or uh, how much taxes am I going to pay? You know, it, all that stuff is kind of crowding in. But, but I just want to give you one more thought this morning, okay? Is Jesus bigger in your heart, in your sight, in your mind this year? Think about that for just a moment. Is he still the baby in the manger? And you left him there last December, and all's good of my life because I'll just cruise on with what I need, and I'll bring the manger out in December, right? Um, is he something more to you than he was last year? In your mind, the richness of enjoying his word, his, his living and active word, is it affecting me? Or have I been more affected by the internet this past year? Think about that, okay? Now, being affected or infected with the word of God as living and active, that doesn't happen by accident, right? Where is it that you would like to go in the near future with the, the renewing of your mind that Christ does in us if we make ourselves available to him? Your heart, think about your heart. Has it become harder this past year because of the junk, right? I think a lot of us have struggled with that. I know in, in ways I have, the resistance that I feel immediately, I don't like that, I don't want that in my life. The, the, the effect is, at least for me, it can make my heart, heart more callous and less loving and less humble and less gracious. Have you gone in that direction? Do you see that in your relationships with other people, maybe in your family or in friends, uh, in relationship with friends? What is it that would, that, that would move you in a direction where your heart would become softer, more gracious, more grace-filled, more filled with Christ? Do you want that? I do. I, do. I need that because I find more life in that. And that makes my view of Christ bigger. Folks, if there's anything I want for our church is to have a bigger Jesus in our hearts and our lives and our minds, will you pray about that with me? I mean, in, in, the, in the following days, weeks, if, if you come to, oh man, I should pray. Well, I don't know what to pray about. Just pray about that, okay? Pastor Bruce, Wants us to pray. Okay, so I'll, I'll try it. Lord, become bigger in my mind, 
in my heart, in the way I see things, the way I comprehend things. Jesus, I want you to be more and more Lord in that and over that. Will you join with me in praying that way? Which really, you know what? All I'm doing is rewording uh, how Jesus taught us to pray. Do you realize that? Did you hear that in what I said? Did you? Anybody hear that? Jesus teaches to what? Pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done. That's what it is. His, his rule, his kingdom in me, changing me so that his, his will can be done in all ways in this world, in his kingdom, starting from me and, and you and all believers. His kingdom come, his will be done in earth as it is in heaven. This place is becoming his kingdom. That's what Revelation says. If you, re, if you read the words, sing the words of Handel's Messiah, you'll come to that at some point, right? The kingdom of this world will become, can you sing it? <laughs> the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I want more of his reigning power in me and our church and of our lives, amen? So let's pray along that line and let's start right now. Lord Jesus, as you have taught us, to pray for your kingdom come. We pray right now that as we remember how you came for us, you became flesh like us, you bled out and died, your grace and your truth fully on display on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so all could be made right with you. And we know all of that is done for a reason. You are about establishing your kingdom in this place, your rule will extend forever and ever, and all will know that you are Lord, and I'm not, and none, none of these other kings or despots or rulers or empires, all of this junk is gone because Jesus lives and he reigns, and I get to be a part of that. Oh, Lord, the glory and the wonder and the splendor of all that it is that you will come and establish forever. Oh, I want to be a part of that. And all these people in our church, we want to be a part of that. So change the way that we see you so that we respond to you more wholly and more fully, that our minds will begin to seek you out more and understand more of you, that our hearts will be softer and more humble before you and will extend, want to extend love and grace to others. Jesus, work at us in, in, in us in that way so you'd be glorified your kingdom will be established, and your will will be done because above all else, we want you to be glorified. That cross was not a mistake, and the tomb is empty, and you are at work. Draw us into your work, wholehearted, without reservation. In Jesus' name, amen.